This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Elections are like tea leaves. Everyone can read into the results what they want to see. The meaning of the 2021 elections are especially difficult to interpret. For one thing, there were no Senate seats up for consideration, and there's only two gubernatorial races that were decided. Everything else was a local or lower tier state office election. Yet many educators found the Virginia results meaningful for their field, their specialty. In the course of a debate between the two candidates, former Governor Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate said, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decision. Well, that line was repeated endlessly by his opponent, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate, who also said that critical race theory was being taught in the schools and also said that charter schools need to be on the table. So we had a candidate on the Republican side who made education a big part of the campaign. And he carries the state uh, despite the fact that this was a state that went for Biden by a uh, 10% edge. So has education turned the tide or is the real issue jobs in the economy? To discuss election returns in education, I have with me today Michael Petrilli, president of the Fordham Foundation in Washington, D.C., an analyst who keeps close tabs on both politics and policy in the education world. Mike, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Hey, it's great to be with you, Paul. So, Mike, when close, elections are this close, as any issue and every issue counts, but the Wall Street Journal reports that only 17% of the voters thought education was the most important issue. 35% of them thought jobs and uh, the economy was the key issue. Mm -hmm. So how important was education? To you? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question, Paul. And I think you've got to look at the, the results in Virginia next to the results in New Jersey. You know, in New Jersey, nobody expected that election to be close. There wasn't a lot of talk about education there. Uh, and yet the Republican, you know, almost won. Uh, you know, they, he, he did something like 15 points better than Donald Trump did in New Jersey just a year ago. So I think, you know, the conclusion has got to be that mostly uh, the result in Virginia was about the, the broader political dynamic, right? As you say, the economy, concerns about inflation, uh, frustrations with the pandemic, uh, you know, the, the frustrations maybe with Democrats, what they're up to in Washington, all of that. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's low uh, popularity rate. Uh, all, all that said, though, Paul, you know, there, there is good evidence that, you know, there was a turning point in this campaign that in Virginia, uh, Glenn Youngkin was having a hard time getting a lot of enthusiasm for his campaign. He was kind of plodding along. Uh, and certainly the polls were showing that, uh, you know, it, it was likely to be close, but that he was likely going to lose. And that when, when McAuliffe had his gaffe where he said that parents shouldn't be telling schools what to teach, uh, you know, and they really turned that into a million ads that played here in the D.C. Uh, media market where I am. Uh, look, that that had an impact. That's where you started to see the polling numbers change. Uh, and you also just saw a lot of enthusiasm, people showing up to rallies uh, for Yunkin and, and just really injected a new amount of energy in there. So, you know, yeah, as you say, in a close election, all these issues matter. I think that, that there is good reason to believe that in the northern Virginia suburbs, uh, which have turned quite blue in recent uh, cycles, 
uh, you know, this issue, you know, was salient and it allowed Youngkin to do uh, several points better than Trump had done in those areas. And that made a difference. But even so, uh, it turns out, according to at least the Wall Street Journal account, is that white college educated women still went for McAuliffe. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is the uh, men who don't have a college education who were overwhelmingly for Youngkin, the Republican mm -hmm. candidate. So, uh, you know, I, we didn't see a lot of movement there that suggests uh, a, a disproportionate shift right. of the, the white suburban mom shifting uh, to uh, the Republicans. No, but we did see some of the white suburban dads. I mean, that's my understanding is that, again, in the northern Virginia suburbs, you did have some of these, you know, swing voters who are college educated independents, in some cases, even Republicans, sometimes Democrats, but people who, you know, voted very heavily against Trump a year ago, uh, who maybe were more likely to vote for Yunkin no matter what, because he wasn't Donald Trump, but, you know, that that uh, did did shift. And so, yeah, look, it, you know, the, the major story is still there, that we've had this this realignment with Republicans picking up, you know, an overwhelming majority of rural voters, uh, many of whom do not have a college degree. And the Democrats are doing very well in the metropolitan areas with college educated voters that 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 trend continues. But but look, Virginia, you know, is, is a highly educated state uh, compared to many other places. You know, the northern Virginia suburbs are where a lot of the votes are. And yet Yunkin was able to do something to turn things around. And, and yeah, look, I think that, that this education issue, it picked up steam. Now, let's be honest, Paul, it's not the kind of education issues that you and I generally write about and care about. You know, there weren't really policy issues. It wasn't about charter schools, really. It wasn't about testing and accountability or the teachers' unions. Uh, you know, it was more of this, you know, this culture war issue around how race and racism is taught in our schools, uh, as well as probably just a lot of frustration with how this pandemic has gone. You know, some of these suburban districts, these huge countywide districts in Northern Virginia were closed for most of last year, very late to open after almost all the other districts in the country reopened for in-person learning. You know, the masking requirements, the quarantine policies, all of that, you know, parents have had enough. And so, you know, here was their chance to express their frustration. And some of them did exactly that. Well, I know this is the feeling in Boston uh, where uh, my grandchildren live and they have shifted to a private school. So they have escaped it, but they, they look at, at over their shoulders at what's happening to their neighbors. And it's just been nothing but quarantines and masks and um, disruptions to the school schedule. And it's very frustrating for parents. And that may be a force in New Jersey too. It may be both of the, all yeah. of the stuff is, is happening in both places, but there's one other thing we should think about, and that this is an off-off-year election. And mm -hmm. the out of power almost always does well in those elections. Yeah. And they, so you knew that this was going to be a Republican year. They At least they were going to get some uh, something back. The mm -hmm. size of it, not so clear, but really the size in Virginia is pretty much the standard pickup by the party out of power. The, the one in New Jersey is actually bigger. So in some sense, the New Jersey story is the bigger story uh, yeah. because the swing there against the party in power was especially large. But that could be because uh, the governor 
is the governor in um, mm -hmm. Jersey. And McAuliffe was the former governor, but he is not responsible for what's been happening in Virginia over the last four years. That was another Democrat. Yeah, no, that's right. Now, look, but here's the thing, Paul. You know, I think if conventional wisdom hardens that says, hey, this critical race theory issue is a really good one for Republicans uh, and it allows you to energize voters, uh, including in those suburbs. Uh, and that does seem to be what the what the conventional wisdom this week is. Uh, you can imagine other Republicans trying it. And look, my, my concern is that the, the risk now is that Republicans are going to overreach. And you see this already, you know, in Texas, you've got this uh, quote, investigation of the, the books that are in libraries and high schools across Texas and how they're portraying uh, racial issues as well as gay issues, et cetera. I mean, to me, you know, you're, you're going to lose a lot of independent voters again on that extreme because people are going to say, wait a minute, I, I don't want my kid, you know, indoctrinated in, in woke stuff, but I also don't want it, books to be banned. You know, that doesn't sound all that American. So, you know, I, I do worry that Republicans are going to need to be uh, careful and thoughtful about how they do this. And, and look, I think all of us in education need to be worried about making sure that, you know, an honest teaching of history is protected, that diverse authors uh, in English class, that that's protected. You know, we, we don't want, uh, it, it's not great for high, you know, high school history classes and high school English classes to be uh, caught up in a big culture war. Well, so curricular issues are going to be on the agenda. I, I agree with you on that. What else do you think is going to happen? Are, are, are Republicans going to press an education agenda across the board in the next uh, 12 months in the hopes that this will um, propel the midterm elections along the same lines we've seen uh, this yeah. week? Yeah, sure. They'll try. I mean, you already see actually the day after the election in, in the House of Representatives, the minority leader talking about a new parents bill of rights. Not a lot of detail on what that's going to be. Um, but sure, I think that uh, other Republicans will see this as a playbook. I think you'll hear a lot more still about critical race theory, even though that's probably not a great term for what's really driving parents crazy. Um, you, know, I, you know, in some quarters, you say that this is all going to help on the parental choice front, too. I hope that's true. I'm a big fan of parental choice. Um, you know, you certainly have seen, uh, as in your own family, a move to private schools and to charter schools in a lot of the country. Um, you know, I, I think the, what, what I hear, though, uh, Paul, more than anything, is that depending on what happens in the midterms, you know, where who knows a year from now which issues are going to be salient. It's probably going to be more about what the Democrats do or don't do in Washington with these big bills, plus if the pandemic's over, plus how the economy is doing. But look, if, if the Republicans have a, a big wave election a year from now, that's going to open up possibilities in 2023. You know, you, you can imagine a lot of Republican uh, uh, legislators uh, doing quite well, and maybe you'll see another wave of school choice legislation uh, in, in that term. Well, my feeling is, is that uh, a midterm victory for Republicans is pretty much baked in. We've seen the uh, normal or better than normal uh, swing to the opposition party in these elections. There's nothing on the national scene in that would suggest that you're going to great, get a great reversal of this. Uh, maybe the economy will pick up. There's still going to be these lingering uh, concerns. And uh, given all the, uh, all the problems with inflation increasing, there's going to be plenty of economic issues uh, hanging around uh, for the next 12 months. So um, I don't really see anything that the Republicans should feel too concerned about in 22.
22, it's mm -hmm. 24, where I think your advice is particularly well taken. If they don't solve their presidential candidacy problem, they are not going to be able to capitalize this on this in the, in the long term. Well, look, this is getting a little bit beyond my expertise, but I, I will say, you know, there's this big abortion case this, this year in the Supreme Court out of Mississippi. Uh, so, you know, ruling will come out in June. Uh, you know, if the Supreme Court, you know, overturns Roe v. Wade, that, that's at least a wild card in the election. That certainly is going to stoke a lot of turnout on the left. And yeah, the economy, right? I mean, I certainly hope six months from now, inflation is calmed down and, and you know, we're looking at strong economic growth. If that's the point, maybe the mood in the country is, is very different. But, but yeah, education I, could stay on the agenda. I mean, we've seen a big downturn in student performance from all mm -hmm. sources. Uh, the data is going to keep rolling out, showing that kids are learning less. Yep. And um, that's going to that's going to propel conversations about schools. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of conversations about schools, uh, whether it's uh, pandemic related or whether it's education related, that that yep. conversation is not going to die. Right. No, I think that's right. But I look, I think the rules are, are still the same. As you said at the beginning, it's still rare that education drives politics. It's much more likely that politics drives what's feasible in education. Uh, and well, so I was struck, I was struck, uh, Mike, by the fact that um, Winsome Sears, the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, won by a margin that was virtually identical to that of Youngkin. Yeah. Uh, there's you, you could there's a sliver between them and uh, you know, she is black and he's supposed to have gathered all this racist support from Southern Virginia. How did she get that vote? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think your your point, if, if your point is that 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 doesn't add up, I think you're right. I think, look, uh, you know, it, the Terry McAuliffe campaign, it, it was just unbelievable their response i mean he made a gaffe that happens right but then they just seemed to double down on it all they kept saying was there's no critical race theory being taught in schools and it, there's nothing but a racist dog whistle and they brought in barack obama to say the same thing and guess what you know as, as many people have written this week voters do not like it when you tell them number one your concerns are all made up and number two you're a racist <laughs> you know? and so and these were again these are many cases college-educated voters in the Northern Virginia suburbs. These are savvy people who have seen stuff come home from their kid's school that they're concerned about. I mean, Paul, the other day, my, my middle schooler came home with an assignment that had a list of American principles, and one of those principles on the list was white supremacy. You know, this isn't just a random kid and a random Monday. You know, it happened to be my kid. But, you know, so you just imagine this, this stuff is out there. Uh, you know, it's, it's related to critical race theory and that some of the terminology is the same or some of the inspiration is there, whatever you want to call it, you know, there has been a big shift in the last couple of years around race and, and how we talk about race, at least on the left. And some of that's ending up in the schools and, and parents don't like it. Plus they're angry about masks. Plus they're angry about school closures. Plus they've got concerns about, you know, transgender issues. I mean, go on and on and on. Uh, but, uh, you know, you don't have to be a basket of deplorables or whatever Hillary Clinton called uh, those voters uh, to have concerns about all this stuff. And, and we'll see if the Democratic Party learns that lesson, that they, they have got to get control of the cultural left if they want. Well, there is a Democrat that's worth talking about, and that's the new mayor of New York, a black man. Yep. Uh, Ad Adams, is that his name? Um, Eric Adams, right? Eric Adams. Uh, he's quite an interesting 
new force in New York City politics. I think he's going to succeed almost inevitably because his predecessor has been such a disaster. Everybody is just going to be totally relieved to have this man arriving in office. So I don't know what you think. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think he's going to look at the schools. He, he seems to be for charters. Yep. He seems to be for, uh, you know, more of an old fashioned education system. Um, so do you think we're going to see major policy changes in New York City? I, I, I do. No, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged as well. He, he comes off as someone very pragmatic. You know, he has been very willing to uh, go to war with some of the folks on the far left in the Democratic Party. And, you know, certainly his big issue is around policing as a former police officer himself and somebody who has, you know, got recognized, you know, really made a name for himself being concerned about police brutality. Um, you know, but somebody be able to say, look, we have a homicide spike happening in New York City and other big cities, and that is not okay. We've got to get uh, crime under control. And likewise, in the schools, you know, de Blasio, as his last act, was uh, going to, you know, basically blow up the gifted and talented program in New York City. And Adams has said, look, we're not going to do that. You know, there's issues. We probably don't need to be testing four-year-olds to see if they get into the gifted program. But uh, I want to expand it. I don't want to abolish it. That's exactly right. So uh, I think that's encouraging. I think we'll probably see a lot of the, the alumni from the Bloomberg years uh, head back uh, to uh, the education department in New York City, and that would be a good thing. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. And obviously it matters. We're talking about a million kids, biggest district in the country, one that can set the tone for others. So uh, th- th- this is something that's very positive. Well, de Blasio's last act may be his worst act, and that's he's uh, sort of mandated that all the teachers go back, that every everybody has to be uh, vaccinated. Uh, and uh, if they aren't vaccinated, they're not going to get paid. And uh, yet um, we've got a lot of uh, families who are still concerned about the COVID and they're not sending their kids back to school, but they can open online. They're not really yeah. Online, and I, when I go around the country and ask other superintendents, they're all using online as a mm-hmm. system. even if they're encouraging people to go back, they want them to go back. Uh, they nonetheless make this alternative um, uh, way of learning available to people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this is causing total havoc, and enrollment is falling in New York City school system by a significant amount. And maybe, yeah. and I think the what we're hearing publicly is not accurate. The, the situation is much worse than what's being publicly said. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and, you, and you do see this, of course, in, in other places, too, that we've had this big enrollment drop. Look, I, I suspected I thought we were going to see most kids come back this year. We'd see big bumps in kindergarten, you know, as maybe parents last year kept their kindergartners home, redshirted them, you know, um, rather than having them do Zoom school. Uh, but it does seem like there is some percentage of kids uh, all over the country who are just missing uh, and you know, here's hoping that this pandemic finally does end uh, soon. You know, all, all these kids have a chance to get vaccinated now and that should help. And, and we can get back to helping kids catch up. But man, talk about a hole. I mean, these are kids that have been out of school for almost two years and uh, that's going to have an impact on the rest of their lives. And some of them, I think, are in high school, probably a disproportionate number are in high school and they're just they're never coming back. Right. Uh, unless they come back with some kind of, you know, uh, a makeup program as they get older and realize they've got to have a high school degree. But yeah, yeah. no. And, and Paul, this, this poor generation, you know, th- these are the same kids that were 
basically born into the Great Recession, or, you know, maybe they were babies or toddlers when the Great Recession hit, you know, and then they went to kindergarten right around the time that there were the big budget cuts uh, in K-12 education in 2011, 2012, 2013, and then they get hit by COVID. I mean, this is just a triple whammy. Um, and so, yeah, we, we need to have serious conversations about what we can do for this generation of kids, especially, as you say, the, the kids in high school uh, who have just been through an awful lot. And, uh, you know, we, we know from past research that this kind of uh, circumstance happening in, in childhood can leave scars for a lifetime in terms of employment and labor earnings and marriage and you name it. So, you know, what can we do to help uh, give kids as much support as we can? So if, if the government, the federal government is, is pouring a, a billions, almost a trillion dollars, I think, when you put what uh, Trump did and what Biden it has done and what Biden's about to do, I think it's over a trillion uh, into, into local, state and local governments. And, you know, a third of that is going to go to schools. And there's, when I talk to superintendents, they tell me they're awash in money. Mm -hmm. So uh, with all, all this money now available, and you just talked about it being yep. a financial problem, is this now going to allow them to do all the things that are needed to uh, put things together? Do they yeah. have capacity to do that? Well, that's the thing, right? So, you know, the, the money is there. I don't know that the know-how is there uh, you know, or the political will. I mean, the concern is that the teacher unions are going to figure out how to just get all this money to flow into their contracts, kind of business as usual. Um, you know, I, look, I think you're going to see, I hope, we better see some places are going to try to do some real things, like, like a serious effort on high dosage tutoring, um, you know, real, at all ages, but for the kids who are most behind. That we know from research, if done well, can make a big difference. But if done well is, is not easy. And by the way, Paul, where do they find the tutors right now, right? I mean, there is just, uh, you know, we can't find uh, all kinds of people to do any kind of job. And so finding uh, people to do tutoring is, uh, you know, they got the money to pay them, but they may not be able to find the tutors. So that, that's going to be the challenge. Again, I, I do hope as the pandemic ends, maybe more people come off the sidelines or willing to work. We can figure out some creative ways um, to get people into those roles, but that's the sort of thing that's needed. And yeah, there's all this money and nobody knows yet where it's going to go or where it's Can you going. say something hopeful? <laughs> yes. I, I will say something hopeful. Look, I, I, first of all, we just said that we're hopeful about New York City. I mean, this is a huge change. Uh, the de Blasio years were, were very tough uh, on education reform. So now we have somebody committed again to common sense, to charter schools, to improving the system, to not being just you know, uh, woke and pleasing the far left. So, and that's a huge district. So I think that makes a, a ton of sense. And, uh, you know, look, I think that this, uh, I think this, this parental backlash, it, it does at least in small ways seems to shift the power uh, away from some of the established interests, the unions and the people who work in the system to the, to the customers of the system. That's gotta be a good thing. Um, we'll see if it's sustainable, but you know, I, I think we're at a moment where parents are, feel like they've got some more power than they used to. So hooray for that. Well, my hope is that we will see a stronger, more viable, uh, more effective school choice movement growing out of this. Uh, I think if parents have options out there, they will have power. I don't, I don't think you get much power unless it's, it's with your feet. You can't get it very easily with your voice. So the feet are the, mm -hmm. the driving force if you're going to get uh, a better educational system. 
and but that takes a long time. So that's my hopeful comment. And uh, thank you for your really enlightening conversation. I think you you really covered everything there, uh, Mike. So um, thanks for uh, joining me on the Education Exchange. My pleasure, Paul. I've been speaking with Michael Petrelli, president of the Fordham Foundation in Washington, D.C. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.